having considered the triunity of God and the true and absolute deity of the Son and the Spirit, we return now to focus our meditations on what we might say is God as God or the single divine being that we call God. Not thinking in particular about the various persons of the Trinity, but simply God as God. I don't know a better way to say that or to articulate. Hopefully you understand what I mean by that. And first on the list in this study is what has been called the spirituality of God. And you can see if you have the book there in front of you, the title of chapter 5 is God is Spirit. God is Spirit. Now, when you hear that statement, God is Spirit, I would imagine that a couple of things or a couple of thoughts might come into your mind. I say, God is Spirit, and you might think, well, I thought we just learned about the Holy Spirit last week. And again, we're not, when we say God is Spirit, we're not talking about the, the particular subsistence or person that we refer to as the Holy Spirit. We're talking about God as God Himself. We, we might say the divine essence absolutely or the divine being absolutely. When, that's who we're talking about when we say God is Spirit. Or you might think that to say God is Spirit seems like a formality or, or an inconsequential uh, sort of irrelevant thing that we have to insert in a study of the attributes of God to deal with it but to quickly move on to other traits about God. To which I would respond... Nothing could be further from the truth. When you hear that statement, God is Spirit, if you are even inclined to think that that is something that doesn't really need to be said or, or that's a given, let's get to the, the real attributes of God, I, I hope that when you leave tonight you'll realize that's not the way we should think. If you have a hymnal... Turn to page 671, and I want to read first from our Confession of Faith. 671, this is our Confession of Faith, chapter 2, the first paragraph, and it'll be up on the screen if you don't or can't get to a hymnal or would rather look at the screen and not at the hymnal. I've got a, a couple things that'll be up there tonight that hopefully it'll make this a little easier. But notice how this paragraph opens in dealing with God. The Lord our God is but one only living and true God. Semicolon. Whose subsistence is in and of Himself infinite in being and perfection. Semicolon. Whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but Himself. Semicolon. A most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, 
or passions, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, semicolon. Now you see there, I've drawn your attention to that punctuation, a semicolon. And throughout this paragraph, there are semicolons and there are commas. And those, those play a different part in literature. Semicolons here separate larger strands of what we might call associated attributes. And then within that large strand, there will be many of them separated by commas. But every time you see a semicolon, it's almost like you're moving on to a, another, another idea almost. And so here we have in, in our confession, between two semicolons, there's one clump of what I'm arguing are associated traits. So if we look just at that little section, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto. Now, heading off this chain is that phrase, a most pure spirit. And I would argue that those which follow here up to the semicolon in this little strand, they all come from or are associated with that first one. Namely, that God is a most pure spirit. Or we could put it this way. To say that God is spirit is to say, by implication, God is invisible. God is without a body. God is without parts. God is without passions. God is immortal. And God dwells in unapproachable light. Other attributes that stem from the spirituality of God are infinitude, omnipresence, simplicity, aseity, independence, just to name a few. And we'll, uh, I'll hopefully show that as we work through this chapter. The, the reason that I'm saying all this at the beginning is hopefully to, to perk your ears up a little bit. I want you to understand that when we say God is spirit, we are making a, a fundamental bedrock assertion about the nature of God from which so many other attributes then flow. Though we often walk through the attributes of God in just a basic list, this one, this one, this one, this one, this one, there are some attributes which are categorically and logically holding up all of the others. And this is one of those attributes, the spirituality of God. There are works on the attributes of God and you might look at the table of contents and maybe see only four or five attributes listed. And you're thinking, what in the world? I could have swore there was more in another book. Well, because usually they're going to deal with these primary bedrock or fundamental attributes. And then as they deal with them, they'll say, now within this, we also see this thing and this thing and this thing. That's, that's sort of how the spirituality of God is. So I want to walk through this chapter and, and what I'm going to do is weave into it some other material from elsewhere. And then in the, the workbook, those numbers or sections which deal with the application, how then shall we live, those things I'm going to save to the end. So we might skip some, but, but I'll try to let you know where I'm, where I'm looking at. So the first, the first text that is mentioned there dealing with the spirituality of God is John chapter 4 verse 24. 
John 4.24. This is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to the woman at the well. And He says, God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So there we have it. As plain as day, crystal clear, no, no confusion about it. Christ Himself asserts God is spirit. Now, I want to read to you a definition uh, taken from Herman Bovink in his, in his book on the doctrine of God and walk, sort of break down his definition to fill out this idea uh, and hopefully give us a better understanding of what it means when we say God is spirit. We have a lot of ideas about what spirit is or what that word means. And, and me and uh, Joe were talking on the car ride home. She asked, you know, how can we all be of one soul? And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, you were talking about those texts about one mind and one soul. I said, well, no, it says one spirit. And I tried to explain what that means. And I said, but there are many ways that we use the word spirit. You know, each of us, we all have our own spirit, but then there, there are ways that we might describe a group of people sharing in the same spirit. Or you might say people from a different school will have school spirit. And I said, sometimes you'll even see on a sign uh, that alcoholic beverages are referred to as spirits. That's one of those words that has a lot of different meanings. So when we think of, when we hear this phrase, God is spirit, what are we saying? And I'll say from the outset, we're, we are saying, and I believe especially as we try to unpack this, we're, we're saying as much as we can, as far as we can, about what is incomprehensible really to us. But we have it very clear. God is spirit. This is what Bavink says, and this will be up on the screen too. The term divine spirituality was used to indicate that God is a substance distinct from the universe, immaterial, invisible to human eyes, and without composition or extension. So when we say God is spirit, we're saying God is a substance distinct from the universe, immaterial, invisible to the human to human eyes, and without composition or extension. Now I want to break all of that down in pieces. And I, I think when, when we finish, you'll at least get a better idea. The first thing that he says is, is God is a substance. Now we might, when you read that, you might immediately begin to, to sort of uh, balk at the idea of saying God is a substance. He, he's just trying to say God is something. And we're going to try to explain what that means. God is spirit, but... How do we say it? Uh, but I would be perfectly happy just to say simply, the first thing that we need to understand is God is. That's the first point that he, say, he gives. God is or God exists. Start here. Hebrews eleven six 6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. We believe that God is, that God exists. Now, from the most basic assumptions, just from that point, God is, 
Before we get into special revelation in Scripture, now, and, and you might consider this just philosophy, but, but follow me here. This is, this is not contrary to how many theologians deal with this topic. We ought to assume since God exists, He must be the most supreme and glorious of all conceivable beings. Now, if we wanted to start from the standpoint of of maybe unbelief or uh, doubt, we might say, if there is a God, well, then He must be the most supreme and glorious of all conceivable beings. Of course, we believe that God is. So we don't say if there is a God. We can say, since God is, He must be the most supreme and glorious of all conceivable beings. If, he, if He's not, then He's not God. Whatever else is above Him would be God. But to have the title God, He must be that. Now, we know of ourselves that we are constituted, we are made up of matter and non-matter, or material and immaterial, body and soul. And we recognize that the immaterial part of us is the, the higher of the two, the, 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 the greater of those two elements of our nature. Our physical bodies, the, the physical matter, it does not animate itself. Apart from the spirit in us, the immaterial, our bodies would lay dead. As soon as the spirit leaves, we die. The, the, we, we have material part, we have matter, but the matter cannot live or do anything on its own. It relies upon the immaterial part, the spirit. It's the immaterial which gives life to the material part. So then we understand that the immaterial or the spiritual in us is greater than the material. It's it's higher. It's better. Now back to God. Therefore, since God is, and since He must be the most supreme and glorious of all conceivable beings, He must be greater than us. Right? He, He has to be better than us. So we could say... At that point, at the very least, he must have a spirit. He must have at least something greater to uh, what is of us. But we also recognize again that the material part of us, again, is actually useless apart from the immaterial. It's lifeless. It has no life or power of itself. Our material part, our physical bodies actually, very often, slows us down, hinders us, and limits us. Because I have a human body, I can only be in one place at one time. The material part of me limits me. But God, as God, He can have no imperfections. He must be far greater than any other conceivable being. And therefore, not only must God have a spirit... He must be most pure spirit. That is, no mixture of matter at all. Nothing in Him that would slow Him down or hinder Him or limit Him in any way whatsoever. Now when we get into special revelation, again, that's, we could say that's philosophy, but when we get into special revelation, we see that this is actually put forth in, in texts like Isaiah 31.3. Which says, now the Egyptians are men and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. 
what's that, what's happening here? There's a distinction being drawn, a separation between God and creatures, men and horses. These things are not God. These things are not spirit. Well, what's the implication? God is spirit. That's what makes Him greater than these things that are flesh men. The creature, the flesh, the material, the matter, is less or lesser than God who is spirit. Because that which is spiritual is inherently or is an inherently higher mode of existence than matter. Matter, our, our skin, our physical material parts or, or of an animal or of a plant, it depends upon a life source. It depends upon something else to keep it going. If the life source leaves, it dies. But it's not vice versa. Our spirit does not depend on our flesh. When our flesh dies, our spirits will continue on. We'll see that later on. So, so first, God is, and because God is, He must be greater than any conceivable being. Therefore, He must be most pure spirit. But next in, in Bavik's definition of spirituality, he says that God is distinct from the universe. That is to say, God is totally other than all created things. Encompassed in the word universe is everything created. So there's God, and then there's everything not God. To say that God is spirit is to say He is distinct from every created thing. Now, what is matter or material? It's, it's a created thing. Well, God Himself cannot be constituted by that which He created, even in the least part. Right? It, that would require matter to exist prior to matter existing before His creating it. That would mean that God is dependent on matter to be God. He cannot consist of any matter, any material thing at all. He must be most pure spirit. And therefore... Next in his definition, and this is a major point when we talk about the spirituality of God or we say that God is spirit, we see that God is immaterial or not material. God is not made of matter. John Gill, when he's, he's unpacking some of these things, he, said, he makes statements like this. Matter... Kids, when we say matter, we're talking about stuff that you can see and touch and feel. Created things matter. Matter is inert, inactive, motionless. Matter is without consciousness, is not able to think, without understanding, without wisdom and knowledge, not capable of acting. Think of a rock, think of sand, think of water, think of a leaf. We were talking about smoke earlier today. Smoke is, you, you, you would say, well, I can wave my hand through smoke and I don't feel anything. But if you got a microscope and got close enough, you would see that's actually floating matter. You could, you could gather up enough of it if it would settle down and you could put your hands in it and touch it. It's, it's matter. It's not capable of thinking. It's not capable of understanding. It's inert. It's inactive. Un in, unless with smoke, the wind comes along and moves it. Then you see it move. It looks like it's doing something on its own. It's not. That's, that's how we should think of matter. 
Now you might think, well, I'm made of matter. And I'm not inert. I'm not inactive. I'm, I'm not incapable of thinking. I'm not without wisdom and understanding and comprehension. But the matter of which we are made does not act of itself. It has no consciousness. It has no understanding. It has no wisdom in itself as matter. Your hair, your hair can't think and do things by itself, but you can touch it. It's there. It's the Spirit in us which produces the powers that we call life in the matter of our human bodies. Again, if you remove the Spirit, the matter dies. It just falls to the ground. It's nothing apart from the Spirit. To say that God is Spirit is to say again that He is immaterial. He consists of no matter at all. He is Spirit only. And this also means, next in the definition, is this also means that God is invisible. Or we could say invisibility is the direct implication of the fact that God is spirit. God is not able to be seen. Our eyes, they, they take in matter, form, substance. They have to lay hold of some created thing to bring them into our minds. Well, God is none of these things. God is immaterial. He's, he's not made of matter. He has no form. We cannot take Him in. He's invisible. He cannot be seen. John 1.18, No one has seen God at any time. In the, in the workbook on page 25, there's a reference to Hebrews 11.27, where God is called, Him who is unseen. Page 26, Two passages from 1 Timothy. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. God is invisible. Why is God invisible? Why is God the unseen God? Because He's spirit. Spirit is not matter. There's no material in God. There's no form. There's, there's nothing to be observed by our senses in God. He's invisible. Next. In the definition, God as Spirit means that He is without composition. Without composition or not composed. Our confession again, and you'll, you'll see the parallels to the way our confession says this and, and the way Bobbink is walking through this. Our confession says, most pure Spirit, invisible, without body, parts. Now there's a comma, that means He's without body and He's without parts. Not body parts, without parts. God is without composition or without parts. He's not composed as if we took one thing here and one thing here and one thing here and put them all together and that makes God. No, He's, he's not composed. He's without composition. Now what is this attribute? We call this the attribute of divine simplicity. God is simple. He's not made of any composition of parts. He is simply God, or He simply is, we could say. 
Why is God simple? Because God is spirit. Earlier when we were talking about the, the defects or deficiencies in matter or flesh, I quoted Gill, matter is inert, inactive, motionless. And we, we, we might object or make the objection, I'm made of matter and I'm not inert, I'm not inactive, I'm not motionless. And again, the physical matter of our nature only acts because of the spirit which produces those powers. You remove the spirit, the matter dies. What does that tell us? We are not simple. We are at the very least matter and spirit put together. God is not composed. He's he's not composed of parts. God is only spirit. No matter. No body. And thus, no parts. There are no parts to God. I... I believe it's appropriate to say that this is another way of saying God is one. Why must God be one? God must be one. Why? Because He's spirit. A spirit is not made of matter. A spirit cannot be split into parts because there are no parts to spirit. It is simply spirit. Therefore, God, being a most pure spirit, must also be one, indivisible, uncomposed spirit. He's one. Then next in the definition, God, being a spirit, is without extension. That means God does not occupy a portion of space. There's nowhere you can go in space and say, Aha, there He is, I found Him. He does not occupy a portion of space. Now earlier we said God is distinct from the universe. All space is within the created universe. Space is a creature, something God made. Prior to creation, there wasn't such a thing as space. There was only God. Space is a creature. So if we were to say that God occupies a place in space, we would have to say that God is limited by the creature, which cannot be. He would be less supreme and glorious than creature. He would not be the most supreme and glorious of all conceivable beings. God is distinct from the universe, distinct from all creatures, including space. He cannot occupy a place or a portion within the space that He has created. Now, a lot of times when we hear language like this, we tend to think that what we're saying is, and even in our minds we picture, what we're saying is God is too big to fit in the universe. Even the word big, that that doesn't apply to God. That's a a term we use for measurement. No, God is, is spirit. You cannot measure that which is immaterial. We're not saying that God is too big to fit. We're saying He's outside of and beyond the very concept of space as creature. Another way to say it is that God is transcendent. He transcends what we know as creature, space, and time itself. Solomon prays in 2 Chronicles 6.18, Behold heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you. And yet, Jeremiah 23, 24, God says, Do I not fill the heavens and the earth? Declares the Lord. It's almost as if He he can't be contained, and yet He fills everything that we can conceive of. 
He transcends it. Now what does this imply except that God is omnipresent? He's omnipresent. He doesn't occupy a portion of space. He transcends the very concept of space. All of God is in all places at all times. We say, how can that be? Does not space present limitations? Well, space does, but but God is infinite, transcendent spirit. It doesn't present limitations to Him because He transcends it. He's not limited by the creature. He's outside of and distinct from space as a spirit. We might say, well, why is God infinite? Why is God omnipresent? Well, because He is spirit. Because God is spirit. Now, in the workbook, page 25, and we can turn now to Acts chapter 17, there's a reference given that I think is useful in more ways than one. Acts 17, verses 24 and 25. There we read, The God who made the world and all things in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made by hands, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Now there are a couple things to note here with regard to the spirituality of God. And the first one is I think what's being hit on there in, in, in the workbook. God as Spirit, as we just saw, is without extension. He's Lord, the Lord of heaven and earth does not dwell in temples made by hands. That's what Solomon was saying in 2 Chronicles 6 and that's what is being said here. He's Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't dwell in temples made by hands. He can't be limited by any, any type of structure. But we also see in this verse a point that is is not being made there. God as Spirit is His own self-existent, independent life. Notice what it says. God is not served by human hands as though He needed anything since He Himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. In other words, You don't give God anything as if He needed anything. He's the one who gives everything to everybody else. He's the giver. You don't give Him anything. Now, how does that relate to spirituality or the spirituality of God or God as Spirit? Listen to Gerhardus Voss. Some of you got Voss's Reformed Dogmatics. This is in there. Here's the question. What does Scripture mean when it calls God Spirit? The Hebrew and Greek words that mean Spirit are both wind. From this starting point, we discover the following. And then his second point is this. Wind or breath is the mark of life and thus stands for life or in the place of enlivening power. Thus it is the case that God's spirituality also means His living activity. As spirit, God is distinguished from man, indeed all that is created, that is flesh, that is powerless and inert in itself. Spirit is thus what lives and moves of itself. See where he got that that idea from spirit, wind, spirit. 
meaning life or standing as living activity. And you see the correlation with that in, in Acts 17, 25. God is not served by human hands. God does not need anything from the creature whatsoever. Rather, God is the one who gives life to everything. He gives life to everything else. Matter is powerless. It's inert in itself. Spirit is life. So what we're saying when we say God is spirit, we're saying He is utterly independent even for His own life. Now why? Because God is spirit. That is to say He is life itself. He is His own life. You don't need to give Him anything. He's His own life. He's spirit. He's independent. We say God is independent or God is ase. God is of Himself. Well, how can that be? Well, because He's spirit. He is most pure spirit. Or we could even say most pure life. That's God. Now, also, now, now let's turn to those texts in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 1 and 1 Timothy 6. Connected to what we've already seen. I, I, really, I'm just trying to pull out more from these passages than, than might be on the surface. 1 Timothy 1.17 Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God... Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. We noted there God as Spirit is invisible. And then chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. He who is the blessed and only Sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. We pointed out no man can see God. He's invisible. But notice what else is mentioned in both of those passages. Both of those texts reference God as immortal or as possessing or having immortality. God is not subject to mortality. God cannot die. Well, how can that be? Because God is spirit. God is life itself. Spirit cannot die. Life cannot die. It's life. Death is the absence of life from matter. When the spirit leaves the body the body dies. But the absence of life doesn't mean that life dies. It means that the matter dies. The body dies. The spirit lives on. We know this. Our spirits, are, they leave our bodies. They either go to be with the Lord or they go to everlasting punishment. The body dies. The spirit doesn't die. Why? Spirit can't die. Spirit is life. God is most pure Spirit, or God is most pure life, most pure immortality. He cannot die. He is life itself. So hopefully you see, God's spiritual nature is not a formality. It's not an, an inconsequential thing that we just have to be reminded of. 
it's actually the complete opposite. The fact that God is spirit underlies so many other of God's attributes. God's immortality, God's independence, God's self-existence, God's omnipresence, God's simplicity, God's invisibility, God's immateriality. All of these are direct consequences of being a spirit or most pure spirit. He truly is the chiefest and most supreme of all conceivable beings. Now that brings us to the applications. The first has to do with our worship and we can turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4 verses 11, 12, 15 and 16 and here we're seeing that the spirituality of God or the fact that God is spirit informs our worship. Deuteronomy 4, 11 and 12, You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire to the very heart of the heavens, darkness, cloud, and thick gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form, only a voice. Verse 15, So watch yourselves carefully. Since you did not see any form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb from the midst of the fire, so that you do not act corruptly and make a graven image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, etc. And he goes on to list various creatures. Now what we note here, and this is just an opening up and an expounding upon the second commandment, what we note here is that the manner of worship is to be in accord with the manner of revelation, the, 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 the manner of who God is in Himself. He says, God did not reveal Himself in a form. You didn't see anything. Why? Because God is spirit. There's nothing to see. You didn't see Him. And therefore, we do not worship according to visible forms. Now, notice I did not say we do not worship visible forms. Because that's what a lot of people will say. Well, I'm not worshiping it. I'm not bowing down to it. No, we don't worship according to visible forms. We don't take things that we can observe and see with the senses and use that to inform and instruct and guide us into worship. Because that's not who God is. We have the revelation of God, His Word. That is what is to lead us to the knowledge and study and thought and consideration and worship and meditation of God, all of which are worship. To have a thought about God is worship. It's all worship. And we're fools if we think that since we're not physically prostrating ourselves before things, that we're not worshiping. That's foolish. No, nobody actually believes that. We understand people are idolaters. We don't see people bowing down and worshiping their cars, but we would say, that's an idol for that man. We understand because of his thoughts, it, his time given. You know that. We don't worship according to visible forms. In other words, our eyes are not the avenue 
by which the knowledge of God is to be given or by which the truth about God is to be informed. It doesn't come through the eyes. It comes from the Word, the revelation of God in His Word. We don't worship by first having our minds stimulated by visible representations of crosses or crucifixes or supposed images of God. We don't start there because we say, that's not how God wants me to get my heart and my mind settled on Him. He wants me to listen to what He said. Start with His Word. That's how I know Him. And again, this all stems from the second commandment by which our worship practices are to be regulated. God does not want you to do anything in worship to Him apart from what He has said in His Word. That's what He wants. Just do... How many times, parents, do we say this? Just do what I say. Just do what I say. Well, I've done this and this, but I didn't say that. I just want you to do what I'm saying because the point is that you learn to listen to what I'm saying. Right? You don't hear that a lot? Just do what I'm saying. That's what God is saying. Just do what I've said. Just worship according to the revelation. Be satisfied with the revelation. Read the Word and say, this is enough for me. And everything else is superstition and will worship. It's, it's us ascribing more significance to a created thing than God Himself has ascribed to it. That's called superstition. Now closely related to that is the text that we read at the beginning. This is basically Christ affirming what is said in Deuteronomy, John 4, 24, God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Again, our worship is to correspond to the nature of the object of our worship. God is spirit, therefore our worship is to be in spirit. Now the note here says... The reference to worshiping God in spirit has two possible meanings. Number one, we must worship God with all our being, sincerely and profoundly. Or two, we must worship God in the power and under the direction of the Holy Spirit. Now, I, I, I will admit, this is a, a, a perplexing text to me. I, I, would, I would say, as Christians, these are not two distinct things. Uh, we do these things together. If, if I'm worshiping with all of my being sincerely and profoundly, I'm only doing that under the power and direction and guidance of the Holy Spirit. I, I do think that number one is probably getting more at what Christ is teaching here. Our true worship of God, He says God is spirit. We can think of all the negatives. If God is spirit, then He's not all of these other things. He's not material. He's not visible, etc., etc. He's not limited to a location. Then our worship is to be in spirit. It's to be, it's to be correlated to that. Our true worship of God is not found in physical, external, material acts, but in the actings of the spirit or the inner man. The mind, the heart, the will, and that must be in sincerity. So I, I don't have any problem with what he's saying. Listen to Stephen Charnock. He says that we are to render a worship chiefly consisting in the affectionate motions of the heart and accommodated more exactly to the condition of the object who is a spirit. In other words, our, our worship, it, God is spirit, then it would be foolish for us to think that, that the essence of worship is just some physical act, going to a place or, or doing something with our bodies or looking at something. Well, that doesn't make any sense because God is not that, God is spirit. 
the, the worship is to correlate with the, the nature of the object of our worship, which is God. We read Acts chapter 17, verses 24 and 25. I'll read it again. The God who made the world and all things in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And the point here is God, as a spirit, is not constrained to buildings. He's not constrained to scheduled meetings. He's not constrained to special days. God does not need our worship. God does not need your worship. If you refuse to worship Him truly in spirit, as is prescribed, as some of you do every week, you refuse, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go through the motions. I'll show up to the place at the time, sit in the seat, do this with my body, these certain things, I'll do all that. But you refuse to render spiritual worship... If you do that, you are losing. God's not losing. God does, hasn't lost anything. God has not changed. God does not need our worship. Our worship is not feeding Him. Our worship is not making Him more glorious. You go home a loser, God is God. It's our loss. If we refuse to render a worship chiefly consisting in the affectionate motions of the heart, that's our loss, not God's loss. Again, you come and sit down and go through all the physical motions of worship and you go home empty, God remains God in the heavens, seated serenely, sovereignly in power. He's not changed. He commands us to worship in spirit for our good, but it doesn't change Him. He's not limited to these, these things. He does give prescriptions about gathering and all these things to, to make it more conducive to our nature as human beings. That's for us, not Him, because He's spirit. But we must also worship in truth. The note says there, the reference to worshiping God in truth also has two possible meanings. One, we must worship God truthfully, sincerely, and with integrity. Or two, we must worship God according to the truth or according to the will of God revealed in the Scriptures. Again, Charnock was helpful here because he basically says, he doesn't, he's not addressing what's written here in this book, but he basically summarizes these same ideas and he says, well, if that's the case, then Christ wasn't saying anything new. But in the text he does say the time is coming or the hour is coming and is now here as if something was, was shifting in the, the way that God was to be worshipped. And so it seems, and I think this is consistent with John's gospel, worship in truth does mean according to the will of God revealed in the Scriptures, but most specifically as that revelation comes to its fullest expression in Christ who was the fulfillment of all of the former shadowy forms. The Samaritans had their forms. The Jews had their forms. Christ says the time is coming, the hour is coming, and is now here when we're going to worship in spirit and truth according to the fullest and most clearest revelation of God in Christ. That seems to be consistent. We also see in John 1.18 that though we cannot see God, Christ the Son has explained Him or exegeted Him. Christ comes as the one full of grace and truth, the full manifestation. He's given us the full revelation. He also stands as our high priest. All of these, these forms are falling away and we worship according to the truth. Worship in truth, God being a spirit, 
It means we come to God only through the mediation of Christ and worshiping according to the fullest expression of who God is that has been manifest to us in the person and work of Christ. To me, that seems to make sense with the language of what he's saying there about the hour is coming and is now here. It seems to be describing a change. God had, has always required His people to worship in spirit and uh, according to what He's revealed. That's, that's not new. Anyway, this also informs our hermeneutics or our interpretation of Scripture. And This takes us back to the opening note of that chapter. He says, at times the Scriptures speak of God as if He possessed a physical body. There are references to His arms, back, breath, ears, eyes, face, feet, fingers, and more. How do we explain these references in the light of the truth that God is Spirit? In theology, these references are considered anthropomorphic expressions. Anthropos meaning men, morphe meaning form. In other words, God is simply attributing to Himself human characteristics in order to communicate a truth about Himself in a way that men can comprehend. And then later on He says, it would be absurd to interpret these statements literally. Why? Because God is Spirit. So when you see these statements and you're reading your Bible, just there's no way that we can read of arms, back, breath, ears, eyes, face, feet, fingers. There's no way we can read that and not be immediately constrained by what we know of those things. We're not to ignore what we know of those things, but we also aren't to draw a direct parallel as if God actually has a back, face, feet, eyes, etc. We understand that these things are teaching us something about God. So as you read the Bible and you see God doing or saying or acting in ways that are some way relatable to you, his face turned. You say, well, my face is turned. As you see that and you read those things, remember, God's not like you. God's not like us. He is a spirit. And whatever's being said has to be balanced with what we know of the nature of God as most pure spirit. It's actually, if you'll, if you'll take the time, and there are men who've cataloged these things and you can find it in places... These anthropomorphisms actually teach us far more about God than they would even teach us about ourselves. We would read God's, God's ears. We say, well, God's ears, I have ears. <laughs> okay. But to know that God, who is spirit, inclines Himself to hear the prayers of His people, to take in and and give Himself to receive our prayers in, in a way that we hear things? Well, that, that teaches us far more about God than it does about ourselves. When I'm sitting in the bed with Shepherd, I'll say, ear, ear, and I'll do His ear, ear. Okay, we, we both got ears. Night, night, let's go to bed. But to learn about God and what it means for Him to incline His ear, it teaches us astonishing things. So don't, don't get caught up in that God is, is like me. He's not like us. He's spirit. He's, he's completely other than, distinct from the universe itself. Let's, rather than end in prayer, let's stand and sing hymn number 35.